Welcome back to the Hemingway This Podcast, Book 6, Chapter 1. Tony is enjoying Munich and has maybe met a nice man, maybe? How old is Tony now? She seems to think she is ancient. Swim said the Mama Fishy says, I found a chronology that says Part 6 takes place in 1857. I believe she was 8 in 1835, so she should be 30 years old. There we go. Okay. She's grown up. She's not as ancient as she might be uh, putting on, though. Swim also says, Andrew, I just listened to your podcast. I understand your fatigue. It is a pleasant read, but I'm not that emotionally engaged with this story as well, although I do enjoy it. But here's the weird thing. I'm having trouble being engaged in reading overall, and that's really new for me. It bothers me. Maybe we need a break after this book before tackling the last three. It is beginning to feel like a grime chore. I'm still working on the cook along, though. Awesome. Good news. I think you need a sabbatical before we finish up, to be honest. Um, Star 415 says, Frankly, I don't know how Ander has been doing it every single day since 2019. A pandemic came and went, and he's still at it. My respect for the stamina and commitment here. Here, says Tegrivi. Um, yeah, actually, before that. It was the year before that, because I did War and Peace. I think, if I'm not mistaken. Anywho, um, how do I do it? I don't know. It's just a habit, you know. It's, yeah, just part of my daily routine. Thanks for the compliments. But I think, yeah, swim, you're right. Like, uh, the fatigue, like just a little bit of a refresher before we dive into the next book so that I can kind of like refresh my enthusiasm, I suppose. Because I feel like if I read this book with a little bit more mental energy, a little bit more enthusiasm, then I might be getting more out of it. But I think it's just a a symptom of, like we said, the fatigue of it, which is kind of blocking that for me a little bit. I don't know if I'll do the sabbatical. I don't know if I'll um, take a break. But you know what I did enjoy was... um, before this book we did like I think it was one week of like poems so that was cool so maybe I just to keep the daily thing going do that or maybe I just yeah take a couple of weeks off before we go into the next one I don't want to take a big break I'm not saying I want to um you know I don't want to lose sort of the the momentum of the habit you know I, I kind of don't want to break the habit But at the same time, I do want to feel a bit fresher going into the next one. Techrific says this, Part 6 begins by establishing the new routine of the Buddenbrook household. Thomas is an early riser and eater of breakfast, telling us he's either an industrious person or just enjoys being alone in the morning and also likes to have a second breakfast at work with his colleagues. Is he a hobbit? Can we expect a third breakfast at Elevensies with fried tomatoes and potatoes? (laughs) Meanwhile, Gerda is a sufferer of migraines and rises late. Glathilde has moved out. I wonder if she is getting enough to eat. Mengstrasse, that was the focal point for so much of the novel, is now basically reduced to an office and a deserted home for Elizabeth. Tony is on what amounts to a combined art tour and husband-finding hunt in Munich. I liked the scene where Elizabeth read Tony's letter out loud to Thomas. It felt real and true to the period. Um, cool. 
it was a cool letter. It kind of it was good how the letter captured Tony's personality a bit. Sometimes in these older books, or in any, actually in any letters, people tend to put on a bit of a different personality from their actual personality when it comes to letter writing. I'm probably guilty of that too. Anywho, chapter two. Here we go. At the end of April, Frau Grunlich. Wait, have we read chapter two? Why do I feel like we've read that? No, we haven't. At the end of April, Frau Grunlich returned home. Another epoch was behind her, and the old existence began again, attending the daily devotions and the Jerusalem evenings, and hearing Leah Grunhart read aloud. Yet she was obviously in a gay and hopeful mood. Her brother, the consul, fetched her from the station she had come from Buchen, and drove her through the Holston Gate into the town. He could not resist paying her the old compliment how next to Clothilde she was the prettiest one in the family, and she answered, Oh, Tom, I hate you, to make fun of an old lady like that. But he was right. Nevertheless, Madame Grundlich kept her good looks remarkably. You looked at the thick ash-blonde hair rolled at the sides, drawn back above the little ears, and fastened on the top of the head with a broad tortoiseshell comb. At the soft expression of her grey-blue eyes, her pretty upper lip, the fine oval and delicate colour of her face... And you thought of three and twenty, perhaps never of thirty. Well, there you go. Her age is dropped in on the very day that we discussed what her age is. It's like um, man knew that by now we're probably wondering that. She wore elegant hanging gold earrings, which in a somewhat different form her grandmother had worn before her. A loose bodice of soft dark silk with satin reverse and flat lace epaulets gave her pretty bosom an enchanting look of softness and fullness. She was in the best of tempers. On Thursday, when Consul Buddenbrook and the ladies from Broad Street, Consul Kroger, Clothilde, Sesame Wishbrot, and Erica came to tea, she talked vividly about Munich, the beer, the noodles, the artist who wanted to paint her, and the court coaches had made the greatest impressions. She mentioned her permanida in passing, and Fifi Budenbrook let fall a word or two to the effect that such a journey might be very agreeable, but did not seem to have any practical results. Frau Gundlich passed this by with dignity. Though she put back her head and tucked in her chin, she fell into the habit now whenever the vestibule bell rang through the entry of hurrying to the landing to see who would come. What might that mean? Probably only Ida Jungmann, Tony's governess and year-long confidant, knew that. Ida would say, Tony, my child, you will see, he'll come. The family was grateful to the returned traveller for her cheering presence, for the atmosphere of the house sadly needed brightening. The relations between the head of the firm and his younger brother had not improved. Indeed, they had grown sadly worse. Their mother, the Frau Consul, followed with anxious misgivings with the course of events and had enough to do to mediate, mediate between the two. Her hints to visit the office more regularly were received in absent silence by Christian. He met his brother's dem uh, remonstrances with a mortified air, making no deference. Sorry, making no defence, and for a few days would apply himself with somewhat more zeal to the English correspondence, but there developed more and more in the older and irritated contempt for the younger brother, not decreased by the fact that, the, that Christian received his occasional rebukes without seem, seeming offence, only looking at him with the usual absent disquiet in his eyes. Tom's irritable activity and the condition of his nerves would not let him listen sympathetically or even patiently to Christian's detailed accounts of his increasing symptoms. To his mother or sister, he referred to them with disgust as the silly phenomena of an abstinent introspection. 
The ache, the indefinite ache in Christian's left leg, had yielded by now to treatment, but the trouble in swallowing came and came on often at table, and there was lately a difficulty in breathing, an asthmatic trouble which Christian thought of for several weeks was consumption. He explained its nature and activity at length to his family, his nose wrinkled up the while, Dr. Grabau was called in. He said the heart and lungs were operating soundly, but the occasional difficulty in breathing was due to muscular sluggishness, and ordered first the use of a fan and secondly that of green powder which one burned, inhaling the smoke. Christian used the fan in the office, and to remonstrance on the part of the chief, answered that in Valparaiso every man in the office was provided with a fan on account of the heat. Johnny Thunderstorm, good God, but one day, after he had been wriggling about in his chair for some time, nervous and restless, he took his powder out of his pocket and made such a strong and violent smelling reek in the room that some of the men began to cough violently and her Marcus grew quite pale. There was an open explosion, a scandal, a dreadful talking to which would have led to a break at once, but that the Frau Consul once more recovered, covered everything up. Reasoning reasoned them out of it and set things going again, but this was not all. The life Christian led outside the house mainly with his old schoolmate lawyer Jusek was observed by the consul with disgust. He was no prig, no spoil sport. He knew very well that his native town, this port and trading city, where men walked the streets proud of their irreproachable reputation as businessmen, was by no means a spotless morality. They made up to themselves for the tedious hours spent in the offices, by dinners with heavy wines and heavy dishes and by other things, but the broad mantle of civic respectability concealed this side of their life. Thomas Buddenbrook's first law was to preserve the Dehors, wherein he showed himself not so different from his fellow burghers. Lawyer Jaseki was a member of the professional class, whose habits of life were much like those of the men, uh, sorry, the merchants. That he was also a good fellow, anybody could see who looked at him, but like the other easy men of pleasure in the community, he knew how to avoid trouble by wearing the proper expression and saying the proper thing. And in political and professional matters, he had a reputation for irreproachable respectability. His betrothal to Fraulein Hennaeus had just been announced, whereby he married a considerable dowry and a place in the best society. He was active in civic affairs, and he had his eye on a set seat. In the council, even ultimately on the seat of the old burgomaster Overdieck. But his friend Christian Buddenbrook, the same who could go calmly up to Mademoiselle Maya de Lagrange, present her his bouquet and say, Oh, Fraulein, how beautifully you act. Christian had been developed by character and circumstances into a free liver of the naive and untrampled type. In affairs of the heart, as in all others, he was disinclined to govern his feelings or to practice discretion for the sake of preserving his dignity. The whole town had laughed over his affair with an obscure actress at the summer theatre. Frau Sturt, in Belfounders Street, the same who moved in the best society, told everybody how, who would listen how Chris had been seen again walking by daylight in the open street with a person from Tivioli. Even that did not actually offend people. There was too much candid cynicism in the community to permit a display of serious moral disapproval. Christian Buddenbrook, like Consul Peter Dolman, whose declining business put him into somewhat the same artless class, was a popular entertainer and dispensable to the gentlemen's companions, but neither was taken seriously. In important matters, they simply did not count. 
It was a significant fact that the whole town, the boss, the docks, the club, and the street called them by their first names, Peter and Chris, and enemies, like the Hagenstroms, laughed not only at Chris's stories and jokes, but at Chris himself too. He thought little or nothing of this. If he noticed it, it passed out of his mind again after a momentary disquiet, but his brother, the consul, knew it. Thomas knew that Christian afforded a point of attack to the enemies of the family, and there were already too many, many such points. The connection with the Overdex was distant and would be quite worthless after the Burgomaster's death. The Krogers played no role after, uh, now. They lived retired after the misfortunes with their son. The marriage of the deceased Uncle Gotthold was always unpleasant. The consul's sister was a divorced wife, even if one did not quite give up hope of her remarrying, and his brother was a laughingstock in the town, a man with whose clownishness industrious men amused their leisure, and then laughed good-naturedly or maliciously. He contracted debts too, and at the end of the quarter, when he had no more money, would quite openly let Dr. Giuseppe pay for him, which was a direct reflection on the firm. Thomas's contemptuous ill will, which Christian bore with quiet indifference, expressed itself in all the trifling situations that come up between members of the family. If the conversation turned upon the Buddenbrook family history, Christian might be in the mood to speak with serious love and admiration of his native town and of his ancestors. It sat rather oddly on him, to be sure, and the console could not stand it. He would cut short the conversation with some cold remark. He despised his brother so much that he could not even permit him to love where he did. If Christian had uttered the same sentiments in the dialect of Mercellus Stengel, Tom could have borne it better. He had read a book, a historical work, which had made such a strong impression on him that he spoke about it and praised it in the family. Christian would by himself never have found out the book, but he was in impressionable and accessible to every influence, so he also read it, found it wonderful, and described his reactions with all possible detail. The book was spoiled for Thomas forever. He spoke of it with cold and critical detachment. He pretended hardly to have read it. He completely gave it over to his brother to admire all by himself. Alright, there we go. Here's another chapter for you. Christian out there running amok, giving the Buddenbrooks a bad name. Alright, have your say, and I'll see you tomorrow.